Welcome to the Driving Dentistry Forward podcast, where successful dental pros and anyone who values the power of a smile can get an edge in the dynamic worlds of healthcare and business. Hosts Chuck Cohen and Rick Cohen speak with top influencers in the world of dentistry and explore essential tools, trends worth your time, and solutions that help you practice smarter. Hello, Kathy. Thank you very much for being here today. Um, Congratulations on being named one of the 32 most influential people in dentistry. At Benco, we've been putting together this list for four years, and you've been on the list every year. No big surprise. Um, For those of you who don't know Kathy, she is the executive director of the American Dental Association. Um, Her biography goes down two pages, uh, just to give some of the highlights. She certainly is the first female executive director of the ADA, which dates back to 1859, so congratulations. Um, Mm -hmm. a graduate of the Tufts Dental School and winner of many awards from Tufts. You were named an icon in oral health by the Forsyth Institute, well-deserved, and have appointments at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And also uh, you are on the the, board of overseers at Tufts as well, correct? Mm -hmm. So um, you've, you've been around and you're involved in a lot of things, which is probably why you're not surprised to be named one of the most influential people in dentistry. So congratulations and thank you for being here. Thank you, Chuck. Um, To be honest with you, I'm always surprised uh, by anything that happens. I fell into, you know, the dental career almost unintentionally. I mean, I did not grow up in fifth grade thinking I'm going to be a dentist when I grow up. It was quite the opposite. So how I got here was not a very straight line at all. So, and I know you've been in a family business and my dad was a dentist, but at that time, there were no women in dentistry, and he kind of thought it was inappropriate for women to want to be dentists. So let's talk about your father for a minute, because the, the theme today is influence. What kind of influence do you think your father was? And, you know, you talked a little bit about the choice of career. You chose something. He kind of a little bit tried to talk you out of it or told you it wasn't a great idea, and you did it anyway. I mean, I went into my father's business. Talk a little bit about the influence of your father on your career. Yeah, well, my I my dad was a great guy, and he used dentistry to forward his personal aims, which I would say family first, and sports. He loved sports. He loved coaching football. He was an avid uh, athlete when he was in college. He was of the generation where, in their senior year in college, they all dropped out to enlist in World War II. He had a lot of deep beliefs. He was very much. Um, a very active member in his church and very active on the parish council and volunteered every minute of time he had. He chaired the public health committee in my town and he was campaign manager for several mayors. You know, I mean, he was just one of those guys. He, I think dentistry to him was a means to an end. His patients loved him. They all called him doc trainer mm-hmm. everywhere I went. You know, your dad is great. And so I think that had a huge influence on me. That and you grew up in, of, New Eng- in New England? Outside of Boston. I grew right. up in a town called Medford. Medford. But it, MEPA. MEPA. Right. M-E-F-F-A. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah did, so, you, uh, did you join his practice when you graduated? No, this is kind of a sad story. So I went to dental school, let's say I started in 78, and it was still that three-year curriculum that went 12 months a year. Um, so it was brutal. And in March of my second year, my father died. And he left uh, a significant practice. My mother had been his office manager, of course, Mm -hmm. you know, for many years. 
And he died on a Sunday and Monday morning, we had to call his patients and tell them. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, it was pretty traumatic. I thought about dropping out of dental school because my mother really needed help. I still had a, a high school age brother. And um, so it was a very tough time. What do you, how do you think your father's uh, passing changed and influenced your life or really? And then second, watching him do the practice of dentistry, how has that influenced now your role at the ADA? I think I, I learned to become resilient because I had had a pretty blessed childhood. You know, I don't have a lot of bad memories from being a kid and uh, we were well cared for and my parents were great. And that was the first major loss in my life. And it was extremely difficult. And, you know, I think that's when I decided you either crawl into a hole somewhere or pick yourself up and just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And because I was in dental school, I was automatically assumed to be the major how to deal with this person. Yeah. Um, we ended up selling the practice after a very difficult period of time. And I remember my father's patients who were very loyal to him, as all patients are loyal to their dentist, mm -hmm. called up and they didn't like the person we sold the practice to. And, and what was I going to do about that? Well, now, you know, I'm a junior in dental school. Right. And I had hoped to do a residency, um, but because I had a baby the day I graduated, the residencies back then weren't keen on taking a woman with a new baby. So uh, pretty much I postponed that and went out and found a job. And believe it or not, my the only job I could find, because I'm not sure women were well accepted back then. Remember, this is 1981. And I graduated, uh, you know, everyone knew I had a baby. That made the front page of the local newspaper. Everybody knew I was class president and I, I graduated at the top of my class. So people were a little intimidated mm -hmm. and I, I didn't have any job offers. So I went to work for Omni Dentics. I don't know if you ever remember. I that. remember Omni Dentics. Yeah. They were uh, a large group practice early on when that. They thing were the first, one of the first DSOs right up there with the uh, Sears Dental Clinics. Right. Remember? Yep, sure. And uh, it was David Slater. The Mr. Donut money was the VC. <laughs> yep. And that was my first job. And, wow. and I learned an awful lot. As soon as the residency slot opened up again, I, I took it. And then I spent seven years in a public health hospital, which was an amazing experience because uh, there were specialists right there and the chairs next to me. And it was uh, a teaching facility for Tufts, BU, and Harvard. So I always had dental students coming in and out. And I would say that's where I really learned how to be a a, a competent dentist. And, and it was delightful because most of the patients we saw, saw were Department of Defense. And God bless uh, service people. They were grateful no matter what you did. And they would always say, thank you, ma'am. And, <laughs> and that gave me a keen appreciation you know, for, man, these people don't expect much. Right. Uh, so let's, let's really treat them well. And I was across the hall from the primary medical clinic, which was great too. We had great relationships with the uh, internal medicine people. And because we had a lot of retirees, we had a lot of complex medical patients and right. we worked together. It was a great influence on me for the rest of my life. Right. And, I, and then I kept teaching at Tufts. Even when I left um, the hospital, I, I moved back to my hometown because my dad's patients were still waiting for me to come back. Mm -hmm. And they kept saying, when are you going to open up a practice here? 
So I rented office space. Actually, Benko was quite helpful to me. Uh, I think I bought my first bit of equipment from uh, my Benko rep. And uh, he, you know, we, I rented office space Uh and put in an operatory and paid rent. And uh, that was another five, six years. And then I outgrew that space. And um, uh, I've always had dentist mentors Mm -hmm. who were very critical in certain periods of my life. So, for example, when my dad died very suddenly, uh, two dentists who were very close mentors of mine, uh, an oral surgeon named Howie Kessler and a general dentist named John Mead, who were faculty at Tufts, so I knew them. Uh, and they were over my house and calling me up and, and taking me to lunch and, you know, keeping me kind of on track. And uh, Howie Kessler knew I was looking for an office because I needed to move out of this rented space. And he called me up one day and he goes, I want you to come see a house with me at lunch. And I'm like, what are you, a real estate broker now? And a friend of his who was a surgeon was chatting in the operating room at the local hospital. And the surgeon said, I, I want to sell my home office. Do you know anybody who might be looking? And Howard said, yeah, I do. So he, he took me to this house. It was a gorgeous home office the surgeon had built, had a beautiful attached office, beautiful, uh, typical center entrance, hip roof, colonial, you know, classic New England. And he, he told me what the asking price was for the house. And I said, well, I, I'd love to buy this house, but I have no money. I mean, I had debt. It's the same situation as today. I had debt. Um, you know, we were living off of one salary. I was paying almost my entire salary for daycare. And it was, um, he said, well, don't worry. He said, Howard tells me you're a good bet. So I'll balloon you the mortgage. You pay me interest for five years, and then you, you'll have time to go to a bank and get a real mortgage. I was oh, like, wow. Sure? Like, what if I don't pay you? Wow. <laughs> He said, oh, no, I, I know your family. You're good for it. I mean, this was my hometown, right? Wow. So that's uh, that's what I mean. It, things were kind of accidental and lucky. Yeah. Um, and then my practice was great. It took off. I loved it. I was still teaching a day or two a week at Tufts. And I think I hit my, uh, probably my late 40s. I started looking out the window saying, maybe there's something else out there. So I... I asked, you know, a friend of mine, what do you think I should do? And and she said, you're crazy. You've got a great practice. What are you, what are you talking about? And then of course I talked to Howard Kessler and he said, you know, if, if you're bored, go find something else to do. Now this was an oral surgeon who had all kinds of jobs in his personal and professional life. Um, and so it was a no brainer for him. If you're getting a little bored, move on to something else. Yeah. Uh-huh. So I went back to school when I was in my late 40s, I went back to uh, Harvard and got a public health degree and a health management degree. And it was while my kids were in middle school, so we all did homework together. Yeah. You know, I, I could schedule my patients around my class schedule. And it was probably the most important thing I did at really? the time. I, I, I stayed in clinical practice for another two years, but it opened up a lot of doors and made me think very differently. Uh, I would say... Uh, postgraduate education is was in my case um, a, a life changer. So, really? and looking back, how did it change your perspective on dentistry or on your own practice? You grew up in dentistry, and now, and all clinical dentistry, and right. now you've do you're doing some professors, but now you're studying public health. 
How did that public, change your perspective public on Public health and, and healthcare management. And mm-hmm. it was at the time when managed care was running wild. Mm-hmm. And, yep. uh, um, you know, capitation yeah. was driving mm-hmm. everybody crazy. And uh-huh. um, so I learned to think much bigger than a private practice. I yeah. wasn't just thinking about my patients. I was thinking about populations. And I was thinking about sustainability and, you know, decisions you make today may have outcomes that don't show up for five, six years. How do you un- understand the unintended consequences? And so I was so lucky at Harvard. I mean, it, the people who wrote the textbooks were teaching the classes. Wow. I, you know, I had Michael Porter. I had Clayton Christensen. I had uh, people who are the governor of Massachusetts uh, was teaching health policy, Charlie Baker. So I, I just had a huge opportunity and it just really changed the way I thought. And, and that's really what paved the way for me to build a portfolio of credentials where I, I could even think about applying for the ADA job. Wow. So, well, let's talk a little bit because it's interesting. And then we'll come back to the ADA job. You have a background in clinical dentistry. Well, first from your father and then from doing it yourself. And now background in, that came later in public health. I think there are a lot of people who would say, of all of all the healthcare professions, dentistry probably spends more time on the clinical side than on the public health side. We yeah, often don't think fair. of that. And so, how does that? How being on both sides of it, how does that change your perspective on maybe your role now at the ADA? Now that you, because um, I think you're expected to represent the clinical side, but also the public health side too. Yeah, and the dental education too, because I still continue to hold faculty appointments and I teach every chance I get. I think the important thing about clinical dentistry is to understand that you serve a community, that you don't operate in isolation. Um, When that became important, I would say in the last year, is how much stress practices were under as they were urged to reduce their practice to urgent and emergent care, right? But without understanding the real threat of transmission, without understanding what the disease uh, entailed and what the science actually was. We had very little science. Those are things that I understood from my public health training, epidemiology and understanding evidence and the strength of the evidence. And so we quickly could move into the mode of not just worrying about what procedures dentists can do or not do, but what is the risk? How do we help the dentist assess the actual risk in their practice and then and then influence and I'll talk about influence a little bit more of uh, the legislators and the regulators on what is the real fact here? What is the real safety issue? And, you know, is dentistry essential or not? Everybody says oral health is essential to overall health, right? But then when it came, push came to shove, yeah, right. oh, dentists, you're like hairdressers. You can go stop practicing or slow it down right. and we'll save the world. And you can, oh, by the way, donate all your PPE to the hospitals because they're really the essential healthcare workers. So I think it, it, it actually propelled us to a recognition that, that what dentists do is essential healthcare. It's essential to overall health. We have evidence to show it. And you know, despite a 20-year-old Surgeon General report that's now being rewritten, um, you know, I think it finally made the case that dentists are legitimate equal players as essential healthcare workers. So how do we protect them? How do we make sure they stay open? How do we protect the patients? How do we make sure they get uh, what they need? And I know I've had lots of conversations with industry about PPE. It was everybody's, oh my God, we don't have any inventory. 
yep. because FEMA was buying all of it up, right? Yep. There was Indeed. no inventory. Um, yes. Um, and we were getting calls, you know, like, why can't I get PPE? Well, because FEMA said no. So then we had to go talk to FEMA 800,000 times. Uh -huh. And uh, finally, finally, we got dentists on the list of essential healthcare workers after weeks. Finally, we got FEMA to apportion some of the available PPE, which they already bought and paid for, mm -hmm. and were storing mm -hmm. to uh, the dental community. And, and, and I mean, I don't know if you know this, Chuck, but they just gave us like 3 million more masks. I did hear you know that. what I mean? And it's yeah. already paid for. So it wasn't going to be routed through uh, Benko or any of the other distributors. They wanted it to be distributed by the ADA because they wanted to make sure their lawyers didn't make FEMA look bad, right? Yep, exactly. Um, so it, it's been an interesting journey. And I think without the public health training, mm -hmm. without the experience with clinical dentistry, without teaching and understanding what dental students are going through right now mm -hmm. and the residents are going through, um, I I think for whatever reason uh, I just got I was well prepared for this crisis um, no doubt. because of all this convoluted you know experience I've had that's not typical. You have I mean, a very atypical resume, and yeah. talk a little bit about now. There's there hasn't been a better time I think as a sort of an experiment on what when influence is important than right. maybe over the past three four five months. Talk a little bit about how to how you used a little influence and how you exerted influence on behalf of dentistry, on behalf of the ADA. When was it helpful? When were you frustrated? Talk a little bit about the use of influence to get something done. You know, how, how do you feel about being influenced by somebody? First of all, if they're not nice, I mean, if they lack a basic human decency and lack humility and um, come in like a, a you know, a uh, like I know everything and you don't know anything and I'm the boss and you're not, uh, you're not going to have much influence over people. They're just going to discount you or move on to someone else that they feel is more in touch with them. So I think you you have to, one, uh, do all the things that um, Cotter talks about in change management, right? You have to, first of all, be a, the kind of person that people want to be with empathetic, kind, caring, listening skills. Um, if you come in like, um, I'm all it and you better do what I tell you, that kind of hierarchical leadership is inappropriate during a crisis and will be ineffective. I think, um, I think women tend to be more um, collaborative in their leadership style. That helped a lot. So if we were going to influence FEMA, we had to be nice. We had to be patient. We had to uh, defer to them. We we had to develop, Mike Graham, our government affairs guy, developed a very close personal relationship with several of the FEMA higher-ups. And that gave him credibility, you know, an ex-Navy guy. And he understood DOD and he understood um, how the military thinks about logistics. So I think that's critically important. I also think you have to over-communicate, over-communicate, over-communicate. And then understand if people can't see that vision of where you're headed, if you can't crystallize it for people, you know, if you're zigging and zagging and they don't know what you're saying anymore because you've said 20 different things in the last hour and a half. So you have to reduce things to simple, simple terms and, and create that vision so people can get it, understand it. And some will latch on, some won't, but that's okay. Um, and then help people get through the anxiety. I, I think, 
COVID has created um, an, a whole situation around grief that we have forgotten about or we put aside, right? There's this profound sense of loss for everything we have given up in the last seven months. And nobody talks about it. You know, I lost the ability to go have a restaurant date. I lost the ability to get a haircut without 18 steps. Um, you know, I, I lost the ability to hang out with my neighbor, go sit in their back porch and share a glass of wine, right? Um, I lost the ability to go into my office. And I, I don't know about you, uh, I have employees who live alone, who don't have big extended families. That sense of social isolation is really bad for you. I mean, human beings were made to live in tribes, right? That's why dogs like us so much. Exactly. Yeah, um, and to lose that uh, was, was creating a, a real, the stages of grief were really real and we could see people go through them, you know, anger. Like my dentists were angry at the ADA. I wanted to talk and, about that because that was an influence challenge. So go ahead and talk oh about Oh my gosh. That. So angry dentists, dentists in denial. COVID's a made up fiction. You know, it's somebody's trying to scare us. It's, you know, whoever. Um, we had a lot of people who then went into tr extreme anxiety and sadness. So mental health started really being an important issue. We started seeing dentist suicides. We started seeing dental students with, with extreme anxiety. Um, our dentists, uh, we sent out a survey to assess their mental health and, and they were scoring really high on anxiety compared wow. to, you know, other years. So there was a, there's a lot going on during this pandemic. And I, I think, uh, you know, I, as a leader, I, I feel like I have to keep it simple. I have to over communicate the simple stuff, keep optimism, keep them optimistic. You know, they, they have to see a bright future someplace. Um, maybe not in the next five, six months, but it will come and we've got to hold ourselves together and keep moving forward. So uh, we also started mobilizing our teams in different ways, letting them self-govern, letting them make decisions, putting agile teams in place. And they would just keep me posted, right? I wasn't trying to over control everything going on in the ADA because that would have been utter chaos if I was making every single decision. And so um, and ADA is a very hierarchical organization, as you know, our governing body. Uh, how do I influence volunteers? Very carefully. Yes, indeed. Executive directors are not one of them, even though I'm a dentist. Right. I always tell my team, put a, dent put a volunteer dentist in between you and every decision. It's their club. It's their society. They are in charge. Our job is to give them all the right information, best information, pros and cons, right? Mm -hmm. Guide them, advise them when needed. But at the end of the day, they make a decision and we have to go with it. Mm -hmm. And that really requires resilience. And that means sometimes they're going to make a great decision and we're all like, and sometimes they make a decision and we're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. First of all, I want to just review a couple because I think there's a lot of good points here. The first one is, it seems like the other side of influence is resiliency. And I think that's an interesting dichotomy. I don't think we often think of that, right? If we're talking about influence, what I heard you say was you need to be resilient if you're going to try to be influential. Because you're not always going to get your way. Yeah. And you have to be elegant when you lose. Yeah. And exactly. um, I don't know, did you play sports? I did. Yep. yep. Not yeah, as much I, as some others, but I did. You have to learn how to lose as much as to you win. You have to learn how to lose with grace and dignity and don't dwell on it, right? Yeah. 
just yeah. look forward. So I think resilience, especially this year, has been incredibly helpful. And and there's been I've had a lot of setbacks in my life. I'm everybody has. Um, and just to keep moving forward is the main message, right? Yeah. And then the other one was really you're in a bit of a unique situation compared to some of the other people we're going to podcast with in that you're constantly trying to influence. You have volunteers. What you didn't say is the volunteers are your bosses, right? Oh, they're my bosses and I get new bosses every year. Every year. So you just happen to have Dr. Gahani as the president this year. He's done a great job. I did a podcast with him a little while ago. He's really stepped up to the plate and every year you get a new boss who's also yep. a volunteer who you have to influence while mm-hmm. you're trying to influence the other members, while you're trying to influence the dentists who are not engaged in the ADA. One of the things that makes, I thought this year very different is usually there's a cadre of dentists who are very engaged in the ADA and there's a lot right. of dentists who are not. This mm-hmm. year you've needed to influence all <laughs> dentists, right? Even the ones who've said, I'm never going to listen to the ADA. Now, guess what? Oh, yeah. Everybody listened to the ADA this year. And I, I think there were moments where dentists were speaking of you in terms that were not very flattering. Oh, no, I got hate mail. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure. What was you it know, like how dare you mail? tell us what to do or oh. how dare you tell me how to practice? Mm-hmm. We just want to keep you safe. Right. You know, we boiled it down to our core value that's on top of the list right now is safety. Uh, along with all the others, but safety and it it did pay off. We have not had a reported case of a dental office cluster of COVID transmission. Uh, all of the ones we've uncovered were outside the dental office and then brought in. And you know, don't go to weddings unless you know everybody. You know? <laughs> right. Um, so I I I do think um, you know you're right. Three thousand dentists are deeply involved. A hundred, two hundred thousand are not. I would say this year we had webinars with 10,000 people on them routinely. That level of engagement was unheard of a year ago. But I think when you have value uh, and you make it accessible, we put everything in front of the firewall. We didn't distinguish between members and non-members. We did something very smart, I think. We made it all available to everyone, but we captured non-member data. Mark. That's very so we, so we could go back to them and say, you know, you really liked this and, and you downloaded this toolkit. We have more good stuff. Would you consider joining? You know, I, I think we took that approach rather than say, you know, if you're not a member, forget it. You're on your own. Um, I felt it was ethical to make it available to everybody. Smart so. and very bright. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the ADA as a lobbying organization. I think this year really showed what many of us have known for a long time, which is one of the secrets to success of the ADA, is the government affairs area that Michael Graham runs. Right. And yes. we're going to do a podcast with him as well. Um, talk a little bit about how that kind of influence work and works and how does influence on the government level sure. differ from influence with regular regular everyday dentists, that kind of thing. So, you know, Michael was also made it to the list mm-hmm. along with Marco, I think, yeah. right? Three. So yeah, so we we think we're we're pretty hot right now, right? <laughs> Michael. And Congratulations. Michael and anyway, so so I would say you know building trusted relationships, as hard as that may seem with elected politicians, is critically important. And then if you do that over time, those relationships pay off. But you can't go to a legislator you don't know and ask for something. You have to have that relationship in place. Uh, we have a very active pack very active pack and they hold lots of fundraisers and uh, these are local dentists who know their local 
House of Representative or know their senator. Uh, Lynn, I mean, I can tell you, Lindsey Graham loves the ADA because one of our Doc Watson had an event in his home for this guy that was blew his socks off. And those relationships have been built over years and years. Michael has spent his entire career in D.C. He's been with the ADA well over 20 years, I think 21 years. And those relationships, he is, when I talk to, to legislators or politicians about Michael, you know what they say to me? We can trust him. That's you a lot. You know how hard it is to be a trusted lobbyist? <laughs> uh, it's almost it's an impossible. oxymoron. Right, it's exactly. an oxymoron. But he is trusted because he doesn't go back on his word. He tells the truth. He he is good for a deal when he makes a deal. And that that has paid off for the ADA this year. So he had credibility. We also have five or six dentists in Congress now. Mm-hmm. We send them to candidate school. When a dentist says, I want to run to our office, we send them to school to teach them how to run a campaign, wow. teach them how to get elected, teach them how to give stump speeches. And uh, I'll tell you, Drew Ferguson, Char- uh, Charlie, they're amazing uh, how much they've helped us this year uh, with PPE, with the SBE loans, uh, with the PPP, the, you know, the, the payroll protection yeah. program. I think there are more dentists in Congress than there are physicians. I don't know, I but that would them. be interesting. I'd have to count that. No. Five is a lot, considering that the dental community is not particularly big. We noted that in our, in our magazine. It's just interesting to see how influential those Congress people can be and how helpful they can be. And I think going into this entire deal, I'm not sure if I would have said to you six months ago, part of your job, Kathy, is going to be negotiating with FEMA for masks <laughs> so the dentists can practice. You would have said to me, that's the craziest thing I ever heard. And yet, here's a situation where it became very important have the ADA have the influence that it has in Washington. And and the same thing for our regulatory bodies too, like OSHA and CDC. We've always been really good supporters of CDC. Uh, I would say my relationship with their oral health director, Casey Hannon, has never been better. We help each other. We, we get the science out together. We look at the science together. Um, we got out of the gate a little bit ahead of them. Uh, but they caught up. And the same thing with OSHA. We committed to doing a hazard assessment for dentists to evaluate their physical plans to keep their employees safe. And we were good to our word. We got that out before OSHA did. Um, so I think we've, I think all of these relationships have been incredibly helpful. And, and you never know, you know, who would have ever guessed COVID-19 would pop up in January of, you know, this year. No. And we do crisis planning, and I have a business continuity plan. No one had this on their – forget that it. That fuck out the window. Exactly. Uh, so yeah. did we. It was like, really? I mean, if you would have said to me six months ago, dentistry is going to be shut down for eight weeks, I would have said that's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard. And yet there we were. So fast. Yeah. And, and I know the industry was in the same duress we were in. I mean, to, to watch 25% of your revenue evaporate in – one week. I mean, I it, we have the same issue. So we're going to dig ourselves out of the hole. Uh, we are seeing some rebound and recovery, and um, that's hopeful. But will we ever get a whole quarterback? Uh, I don't know. Not, not sure. Not sure. Um, not so sure. in the few minutes, so and, and on behalf of industry, thank you for everything you, you and your team have done, because it has been a great partnership. So thank you. Um, in the few minutes that we have left, talk a little bit about sort of where you see dentistry going for the next four or five years and how you hope to be influential. If you could sort of 
steer the direction one way or another, Kathy O'Loughlin, where would you now, steer it and why? So no matter what I say, half of my members will hate it and the other half will love it. Uh-huh. So uh, what I would say is uh, COVID has accelerated every trend we've been seeing, good and bad. The trend towards aggregated larger practices, it's accelerating that. It's accelerating the retirement cliff. The boomers, the giant group of boomers are moving out faster. It's accelerated the need for students to deal with debt. The hardest hit group are the employed dentists. They tend to be younger. They did not go back to work right away. And their schedules are not full. I had one community health center dentist tell me his community health center reopened, but he's yet to get a full week schedule. You know, so... So I think it's accelerated all the trends that we have been concerned about. I do think it'll be harder for solo practitioners to compete with these larger practices because of the cost of everything, right? Uh, technology is king. If we didn't have Zoom, I would have been out of business in March. So the technology platforms have now delivered on the promise of automation, you know, being able to reduce, um, you know, your your expenses and become more efficient. But, um, you know, how do we help dental practices uh, digitize completely? We still have a lot of practices that have paper records, right? Um, So I think all of the trends that we were seeing, you know, the increase in student debt accelerating, the difficulty of young dentists managing debt and buying practices is still, I think it will continue the trend of aggregated practices that are not necessarily DSO-backed, dental support organizations or venture back, they'll just be dentists saying, we'll do better if we own five practices in five locations and systematically make all the practices run on the same business platform, right? You can buy one CAT scanner or one 3D printer and have five offices networked to it, right? So, yes. so that the digital transformation is going to accelerate. Um, and I, and I think scope of practice is going to change dramatically. I think dentists, now that we are, by the U.S. government, essential healthcare workers, I think people are going to start looking at dentists as people who can screen, vaccinate. Uh, you know, um, there's going to be a scope of practice enhancement, I think, uh, because dentists will start being seen as people who are operating in the primary care sector. Um, so I think it's all good and bad, but it's change. And change is something that we all have a hard time with. And dentists right. especially. I mean, we all know that from the inside. Um, and But change is important, and it's good to know that we're changing together. So absolutely. Yep. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's uh, my, my hope for the future is that uh, dentists see the benefit of change and are not too frightened. Um, because honestly, um, most dentists my age will tell you, Nothing I learned in dental school is the way I still think about providing care. And that slow incremental change is easier to digest than the COVID crisis change we're all being forced to go through. But but change is good. Change is healthy. Take a deep breath. Let go of the anxiety. Um, you know, like I said before, just keep putting one foot in front of the other and, and life will turn out fine. Dentists are very lucky. They have a great profession. I could not have done what I've done without going to dental school and without going back for a public health. I mean, it changed my life. So I'm very grateful. This has been the best job I've ever had. I'll be at the hardest, um, but it's been a great run. And, and I'm, 
I'm excited for the future. I think dentistry is still an awesome profession. And if I, I, none of my four children decided to go to dental school, which was very sad for me. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. That's, that's not me a good too. outcome, but you know, there's nothing we can do about that. There's still grandchildren. You never know. Good for you. Well, Kathy, thank you very much for the time today. This was a terrific interview and we really appreciate your insights. Um, congratulations again on being one of the most influential people in dentistry. And honestly, in this year of COVID, we needed your influence more than ever. So thank well, you thanks, very much. Chuck. And on it's behalf of the industry, thank you very much for everything you do for dentistry. And thanks for today. Oh, you're welcome. Bye-bye. Be well. Thanks. Have a thank good day. You. Too. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks for listening in. Don't want to miss an episode of the Driving Dentistry Forward podcast? Subscribe today on your favorite podcast app.